Amen. Great song. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, teaching through the book of 2 Corinthians. And if you're thinking, well, I'm only here this week. Well, believe it or not, we have all of the messages on iTunes, or you can download them right off the, the Garden City Chapel website. But uh, it's been interesting even to think of how appropriate the passage we're looking at today is for the day we live in. We live in times where, you know, I thought as we were saluting the flag, there's people in America that want to burn the flag. We're celebrating as we worship as believers, and I don't know that we've ever lived in a time where not only are there people that hate our country, there's people that hate Christians. Are you aware of that? There's hostility, animosity, and how do we live as believers? Charles Spurgeon lived in the 1800s in England, in fact, died in France, but great church. He was a great stalwart preacher, defender of the faith. He talked about the vicious attacks that he endured and said this. He said, scarce a day rolls over my head in which the most villainous abuse, the most fearful slander is not uttered against me, both privately and by public press. Every engine is employed to put down God's minister. Every lie that man can invent is hurled at me. That was Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the late 1800s. And today we're going to look about 2,000 years ago at the Apostle Paul who was experiencing the same thing. There were false teachers in the church in Corinth that had infiltrated the church and were saying lies about Paul. Now Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth, was on his way back there, loved the Corinthian people, in fact considered them his children. And yet, he's having some of these same attacks. And I think about us today. The title of the message is A Call to Holiness. And so, men and women, if you're a child of God, the question, how do we live in the year 2015 in a culture that is largely, largely some are not just rejecting Christ, some are very hostile to the claims of Christ and hostile to the fact that you're a believer. That's changed in my lifetime. I read a quote this week that basically said, when Satan, historically, when Satan has attacked the church, the church has grown. It's when Satan joins the church that the church struggles. And think about that. The, the day we live in, what is the difference between the attacks of Satan and how often has it been? No, Satan's trying to join the church. Had the opportunity about 20 years ago, to go into Eastern Europe behind what used to be called the Iron Curtain and, and preach. And I had some believers, some brand new Christians that came up to me and said, how can we tell the difference between what we're hearing you say and what we're hearing this other preacher say and what we're hearing this group say? And they started describing some of the groups. There were some other Christian ministers over there. There are also some cults there. I thought, isn't it interesting? Here's a culture that has been deprived of truth for years, and now the Iron Curtain's fall, and we're able to go over there and preach, but not only are we there, there's cults over there. So I finally said, here's how you know. Read the Bible. If, it, if you hear somebody, if you hear me say something that can't be backed up by Scripture, then don't buy it. Don't believe it. The problem is we're living in a culture with people that don't know the Scriptures. And so you're hearing ministers say things, you're hearing denominations say things that you're thinking, wait a minute, doesn't quite sound right. Well, go read your Bible. 
All right, I'll get off my soapbox and get back to the sermon. <laughs> I just want, I want you to see in this first passage, first part of the, the passage we're looking at, Paul's heart for the people. Paul loved the Corinthian Christians. So we're going to look at chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Then we're going to jer- jump to chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, before we come back and finish chapter 6, because all of this relates to just revealing Paul's heart. He says this, Our mouth... This is verse 11, chapter 6. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our hearts, our heart is open wide. You're not restrained by us, but you're restrained in your own affections. Now, in like exchange, I speak as to children. Open wide to us also. In chapter 7, verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you, great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. See Paul's heart, he says, our mouth is spoken freely. Basically Paul said, I haven't withheld anything. It was beneficial for you. I have been very open with my heart, and it's come out through my mouth to tell you that I love you, but also to protect you by some of the things that I've had to say to you. He's spoken without resolve, without reserve. And then he says, oh, Corinthians, and that may, it may seem insignificant, but Paul rarely does that. He does it in Galatians. He does it one other time in one of his letters, but it's typically he doesn't make it this personal, but I think Paul's heart's breaking. He says, oh, Corinthians, please understand how much I dearly love you. In fact, he said, you you hadn't been restrained by us. What's the word restrained means? It means to hem in closely. It means to crowd together into a narrow place. He said, you haven't been forced into this narrow place by us. You've done it to yourselves by your own affections. In fact, the word affection literally means the spleen or the chief intestines. What's Paul talking about? He wasn't an anatomy major. They didn't know as much about the anatomy we do now. I don't really know. You know, you can have your spleen taken out and live. What's he talking about? He's talking basically from the inside of you. You've cut us out. You ever told somebody you loved them and they didn't say anything back? You don't have to raise your hand. If you're a teenager, if you're dating somebody right now, You ever been afraid to say, I love you, because you're not sure? There there was a girl I wanted to tell desperately how much I loved her, but I was nervous. I was thinking, what if if she doesn't love me yet? Yeah, because I knew it was coming. (laughs) I dated several girls. I only told one that I loved her. We've been married 34 years. That's, That's the good news. But it took me a long time to tell her I love her. I was so scared. And I finally just said, you know what? I love her, and I'm going to tell her. Even if she looks at me and says, well, that's nice. <laughs> and I just want to say, girls, if some guy tells you he loves you and you're not ready to say you love him, just say, I can see how you feel that way. <laughs> and guys, it may work the other way, you know. Some girl, you're not feeling it yet. You're not ready to tell her you love her. And she says, I love you. Say, well, thank you. If she works at Chick-fil-A, she'll say, my pleasure. (laughs) 
But as heartbreaking as it is to have unrequited love, that's what Paul's talking about. Paul's saying, we have demonstrated our love for you. We have poured ourselves out, and I've spoken to you to protect you, to build you up, to encourage you. And we're getting nothing in return. In fact, you're buying some of the lies. And so he says this, he said, in like exchange, in other words, hey, I'm giving here, give some back. I speak as to children. Literally just that sense that children have this innate understanding of fair play. Paul said, I'm talking to you like children, and he really considered them his children spiritually. He said, open wide to us also. In the same way you've seen us open wide to you, quit clamming up and closing up. Open wide to us also. And then in chapter 7, he, he gets a little more specific. He says, make room for us. You've narrowed by your own affections. Quit doing that. Make room for us. Make a place for me, literally. Then he says three things. He said, we wronged no one. Literally, we haven't been unjust. We haven't injured anybody. We corrupted no one. Literally, we haven't spoiled anyone. We took advantage of no one. Literally, to overreach, and it's almost self-serving. We didn't take advantage of you for our own benefit. Now, there were people doing that in the church at Corinth. They were the false teachers. The reason they were so desperate to move Paul out of the way is because they wanted to be in his place for what it was going to do for them. Love involves humility. It's proud people that love themselves. And then he says, I don't speak to condemn you. Literally, I'm not passing final verdict on you. Because once final verdict is, is spoken, there's not any recovery from that. Paul disciplined the Corinthian church. He didn't punish them. He said, as I've said before, you're in our hearts. We're going to live together. We're going to die together. I'm joined with you. But then, based on that platform of, hey, I love you. I've opened myself to you. Please open yourself to me. But now I need to tell you something. His open heart did not preclude him from giving a stern warning. If you've got a two-year-old child and you take a razor blade away from the two-year-old child, what's that two-year-old child going to do? It's going to cry. It may even try to bite you, he or she. What are you doing, though? You're, you realize you don't need to be playing with that. That's what Paul's doing with the church in Corinth. He's saying, I love you so much, i got to give you a stern warning. You see, I think sometimes people are afraid, hey, if I really love you, I don't want to ever say anything that might upset you. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. If you don't care about people, You'll let them play with razor blades at two years old. You'll let them run out into the street. You won't take care of them. And so Paul is saying, I've got a warning for you, and it's because I love you that I say what I'm about to say. And here's what he says. Verses 14 through first part of 17. Let me read this. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them 
and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. So Paul states a principle, and then he gives some practical application. The principle is do not be bound together with unbelievers. You've heard this referred to this way. Don't be unequally yoked. Now, it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean yoke. Okay, it's yoked, Y-O-K-E-D. Now, this is what two eggs look like in a frying pan. I can't date you, we're unequally yoked. Now, what is a yoke? Well, here's a picture of a yoke. It was something you don't typically see now. It was something that would connect two animals together. In fact, in Leviticus, it says, don't yoke up like an oxen with a donkey. Why? Because you're not going to get much work done. They're not, they're not going to pull together. So here's what it should look like. You've got two cows that are yoked up together, and they can do twice the work because they're pulling together, helping each other. So what's Paul saying? Yes, you live in the world, but be careful about spiritual relationships. Be careful about being unequally yoked. Believers and unbelievers inhabit two different worlds. And you say, well, it seems like we're all in the same world. No, your citizenship's now in heaven. This world's not your home. Here's the good news. It gets a lot better than this. So he gives some practical, just makes it real practical. What partnership does righteousness and lawlessness have? In other words, what association does righteousness, in other words, being just before God because you're obeying God, have to do with lawlessness, people who are willfully disobeying God, blatantly rebelling against God? Or what fellowship? It's the word koinonia. We get the word communion from that. What communion does light have with darkness? The two cannot live together. What happens when you bring light into darkness? It's not dark anymore. I've said this before already this year. You, you can go to Walmart and buy batteries for a flashlight. You can't buy batteries for a flash dark. If you're staying at the chapel and you're kind of thinking, you know, I might want to go to bed before everybody else does, and they don't turn the light off, I'm turning on my flash dark. I wish they had those, but they don't make that. Light and darkness can't dwell together. Or what harmony, this is the word symphony, literally. What harmony, what unison, accord, agreement does Christ have with Belial? And you're thinking, who in the world is that? That was a, an epitaph for Satan. To assume there's cooperation between Christ and the devil is ludicrous. It's absurd. And Paul's using absurdity to, to illustrate in spiritual relationships Believers and unbelievers would be unequally yoked, so don't do that. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? In the Old Testament, they had the tabernacle in the wilderness. Then they had the temple. Same thing, but it was a visual reminder of the presence of God among His people. Where's the temple now? You. If you're a child of God, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells within you. Isn't that great? He doesn't dwell in buildings built with hands anymore. He dwells in you. Therefore, and Paul's so good at this. Paul's so good at making a case and then saying, therefore. All he's saying is, based on what I've just told you, then do this. Come out from their midst and be separate. 
Literally come out from the middle of them. Here's the problem. We live in a society, I'm bringing this into modern day, 21st century as a believer. There's going to be places you just can't go and participate because you're not like that. And we don't like to stick out like a sore thumb. We don't like to be the one that's kind of singled out. It can happen in school with people saying, well, you're just holier than thou. It can happen in the workplace. In fact, it's, it's getting more prevalent that to live for Christ will get you noticed. And you know what I think? I think that's good news. The reason I'm praying for revival in America is I think it's becoming a little more obvious who the children of, the God, of, children of God are and who the children of the devil are. And those two can't mix. You'll be frustrated if you try. And so to live for God may mean that you get noticed. You can't be a chameleon anymore. You can't kind of fly under the radar. Come out from their midst and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. The word touch literally means attach yourself to. Yeah, there's times you rub up against something. <laughs> That's not a word Paul uses. Paul's saying quit attaching yourself to the things of this world that are anti-God. So don't be unequally yoked. What does it mean? Come out from among them and be separate. What does it not mean? First thing it doesn't mean is don't retreat from the world. Read about a neighborhood in Texas where to live in that neighborhood, have a high wall around it, to live in there, you have to profess to be a born-again Christian. Now, if that sounds good to you, you've got to think about that for a minute. God's not asking you to leave the world. In fact, what did, what did Jesus pray for his disciples? The high priestly prayer, John 17, he said, God, I don't ask you to take them out of the world. I ask you to protect them from the evil one. So what does Jesus want us to be doing? He wants us to be living the Christian life in front of people we come in contact with. So if you never hang around non-believers, you're not going to have an opportunity to influence and impact non-believers. Just don't attach yourself. Don't get glued together. Don't link up. Stand for Christ even in a dark generation in society. It also doesn't mean to divorce unbelieving spouses. Paul's already addressed this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, what happens, women, if you come to Christ, your husband's not a believer, do you just walk away? He said, no. Real specifically, don't, don't walk away. Live the Christian life in front of them, and hopefully your righteousness will influence them to Christ. Same thing for men. Men, if your wife's an unbeliever, live for Jesus. And hopefully your life, your example, your witness will bring them to Christ. Women, I can tell you what doesn't work, hitting them over the head with the Bible. The only way that works is temporarily, if the Bible's big enough. The best thing you can do is live a godly life in front of a non-believer. Third thing it doesn't, mean, doesn't do, it doesn't void the church's responsibility in the world. We're, we're to be salt and light in the world as the church. We're to tell the world about Jesus so we don't just grow into this holy huddle. I've been in some churches. I think their motto was, us four and no more. I, I literally had a guy stand up in a church one time and said, the reason we joined this church is because it was a small church. And we want to keep it that way. Really? 
Is that why Jesus died on the cross? I was actually the youth pastor of that church, and we ran 60 to 100 on Sunday morning. When I left, the church was running a little over 100. First Sunday night, I had two youth. Next week, I had four. I thought, hey, I'm the fastest-growing youth ministry in the country right now. We doubled. (laughs) Good news is that church now has multiple campuses with thousands of people worshiping there. It's in Texas. So he didn't win the day, us four no more mentality. That's what it, it doesn't mean. And then the last, just the last half of chapter 6, verses 17, 18, and then verse 1. Here's the promise of God. God. Paul is telling them, don't yoke yourselves with unbelievers. Come out from among them. And he even quotes Old Testament scripture. Here's a promise of God. Do that and I welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Isn't that good news? The reason some believers get cut off from the promises of God is they're not obeying God. They need to fall under the discipline of God. What God's saying is, if you'll do this, I will welcome you. Literally, to take into one's favor. I'll be a father to you. Psalm 68, verse 5 says, I will be a father to the fatherless. Isn't that great? You, you may not have an earthly father. Your father may have died. You may have never known him. Here's the good news about our Heavenly Father. He loves you. He loves you enough to die for you on a cross. To send His only Son so that we could have life. And whether you had an absent father or just a father wasn't very good, maybe you had a great father. Let me tell you, he still wasn't perfect, was he? God says, I'll be a father to you. You'll be sons and daughters to me. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, here's what we're to do. Cleanse ourselves. And in case that sounds like a word that, that stresses you out, you're thinking, okay, I've got to make myself clean. It don't work that way. The tense of the word here is it's an action from somebody else. It's surrendering yourself to God so that you can be clean. That's the only way it happens. So what do we do in response to a message where we say, okay, God, I'm living in a dark generation, and God says, cleanse yourself. God's saying, submit yourself to me. As we looked at a week or two ago, I'll make you a brand new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In fact, he said for us to be holy as he is holy. And he uses that word perfecting, which literally means to complete, to fulfill, or to finish. That's what Christ has started in your life. And Paul said in Philippians, I'm confident of this very very thing. He who began a good work in me will bring it about to completion. Let's pray together. You bow your heads before the Lord. Let me just ask you, are are you a believer? Are you a Christian? Is there evidence of it in your life? If you're not, today could be the day of salvation. Today would be a day where you simply say to God, Oh God, I need you as my Lord and Savior. Please forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Make me clean.
most of you in this place would confess and acknowledge that you are a believer. So how are we going to live then in 21st century America or wherever we're from? We live surrendered to God. We live separated from the world. We're in the world influencing them for the cause of Christ, but we're not attached to the world. And God, I just confess, that's difficult to do. We only do it through your strength and power, so we pray for that today. In Jesus' name.